Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, before we get this episode started, I'd like to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters over on patreon.com slash positivelytrek, including Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel and Dave Garcia. Thank you all so much for your support. If you'd like to help keep Positively Trek coming to you each week, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can help out the show and at any level you will receive perks such as early access and exclusive bonus content. Thank you all so much for listening. And with that, let's get on with the show. Peace and quiet appeals to me, Lieutenant. Yeah, well, maybe that's okay for someone like you, whose career is winding down. But me, I need some challenge in my life, some adventure, maybe even just a surprise or two. Well, you know what they say, Lieutenant. Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. So for this book club episode of Positively Trek, I thought what I might do is start in the middle of the story and then kind of jump to the end of the podcast and then have a little bit from the beginning of the podcast and then we'll jump back to the present day which is the introduction so i'm dan gunther this is the positively trek book club and with me of course is bruce gibson and my weird introduction will hopefully make sense once we start talking about this book I sure hope so, because I'm very confused right now. Well, we are talking about a novel of the Lost Era, the final novel of the original run back when it was first published. Catalyst of Sorrows is the name of the book by Margaret Wander Bonanno, great Star Trek author whom we've had on the show, of course, recently, uh, unfortunately passed away, a huge loss. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful writer. I'm really excited to talk about this book. Yeah, just noticing that she was the author of this book when we were coming to it. And I've read this book, you know, when it came out years ago. Uh, So this is my second read. But then I realized, oh, yeah, Margaret wrote this and she's been on the show. We did get that chance to talk to her. It was both our first times ever talking to her. And I think we mentioned to her that we were going to hit the lost era and eventually get to this book. And she said she would come on. And uh, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, unfortunately, she's not going to be here, of course. But uh, it's just great to see that, you know, she lives on in print, right? We still have these to go back on. So I really appreciate all the books that she's written for Star Trek. Definitely, yeah. And and she didn't write a ton of Star Trek novels. You know, she, she wrote a few But what she did write really made its mark on the Star Trek universe. Of course, we talked to her uh, back our first book club episode about Strangers from the Sky. Wonderful, wonderful Star Trek novel. And uh, this is another one that, you know, spoiler alert, I really enjoyed this. I think this was a really great novel and a lot of fun to read and a really good one to, to end this current run of the Lost Era novels. There are a few more that I'm sure we'll get to that were published later. But yeah, this initial run, this was kind of the end 
of that series. So interesting book and a lot of fun things in it and some interesting stylistic choices that we're going to get into. So one thing that caught my eye initially when reading it is the acknowledgements page. And she lists a bunch of people, of course, Rick Sternbach and Susan Schwartz and a number of other people, Marco Palmieri, the editor, of course. But she ends it with, and with homage to the master, John Le Carre, for providing the template and for teaching me how. So I love that Le Carre has an influence on this novel in kind of the style of how it's written, because when it comes down to it, it's it's kind of like a book about intrigue and spycraft and all that sort of stuff kind of woven into here in the Star Trek universe, which I thought was a lot of fun. So, Bruce, what did you think of that kind of way of telling a story in the Star Trek universe here. I liked it, and I had to look up John Le Carre. I'm sure I'm not the only one that didn't know who this person was. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I just looked him up. Uh, so, okay, he was an author. Got it. Yes, he was an author. <laughs> he was an author until, oh, wow, he just passed away like less than a year ago. Very recently, yeah. yeah December of 2020. I, I like the style. Uh, I, I did like how it did like you were saying middle beginning end and and that sort of thing i didn't get lost let's just say that it made sense to me mm-hmm. i love how it kind of builds on one thing and another and it's like okay i'm going to give you a little bit of backstory because it relates to this but there's a backstory to the backstory too yeah and yeah that is obviously what i was alluding to at the beginning there is you know th- it'll start a chapter and you don't realize right away that it's actually a flashback to something that happened way earlier that gives a little bit of insight into the character in the present situation, that kind of thing. We learn little bits and pieces about the characters, mostly the main, I'd say the main secondary character, main secondary character. Is that actually a term? I don't know. But, sure. You know, if Uhura is the main character, this is kind of the other main focus of the novel is this young Romulan woman named Zetha, who's kind of uh, this girl who's been taken off the streets by the Tal Shiar and trained to be kind of a spy. And we kind of follow her story. And it's her that we're mostly learning about with these strange flashbacks and, and narrative twists. And I like that you said that you weren't confused because I feel like that's a big risk in taking these kind of narrative decisions And maybe, you know, some authors might take it lightly and just try and play around with it. But Margaret Bonanno here has really crafted an intricate story that I think really holds together well and isn't confusing, like you said. Yeah, there's a lot to say to that. The fact that, yeah, that it does do that jumping around. And honestly, until you mentioned it at the beginning of the show, I was thinking, oh, yeah, it does do that. Like, I didn't even remember that initially as I was thinking back on this book, I'm just thinking about the events of the book, but then yes, uh, it would do that quite often, but yeah, never at any point did I get to a chapter or a section where I was like, wait, wait, where, where's this taking place? What's going on? Cause I thought, you know, that it just, it seemed natural. It just played smoothly. And maybe she just used the right words. Like, you know, because there's a character that maybe is from the past. And so when the you know next section or chapter starts, that character's name is brought up, you know, it's from the past. You mm-hmm. know, So it was clever. It really worked. Yeah. And she uses very descriptive language to kind of paint the scene 
really early on. So yeah, you're never really left floundering, trying to figure out where you are. Like it seems that she's very good at establishing exactly where and when you are. And like you said, she's not outright saying it. She's not outright stating it, but it's written in such a way that you understand that right away. And I really appreciated that. And the other thing I appreciate is sometimes when I read novels and there's several new characters, sometimes I forget, wait, who's this person again? I never had that problem for some reason in this one. Like if a new character was introduced and was mentioned then chapters later, I wasn't going, oh, wait, yeah, who's this guy again? It was more of like I knew right away who they were. I, I, I don't know what I don't know why that is, but it just worked for me with remembering who the new characters were better in this book than I do in some others. Yeah, she seemed, like I said, kind of really good at painting that picture, I guess. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is either. I'm just a hallmark of a really good writer, I think to be able to create that image in your head and have it stick and not have it be like, wait, what's going on? Where are we? Who's this again? Who's that person? I don't get this, you know? And I I feel like, yeah, she's just good at that. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe the, the naming convention kind of clues you in on that person. So she's good at naming characters too. That could be too. The other thing is there's not a ton of new characters in this. Most of the characters in the novel with a few exceptions are people we've seen before, which is kind of interesting too. And we'll get to that for sure, because I have some thoughts. That's why I remember, because there aren't that many, I guess. (laughs) I can remember when there's fewer of them. (laughs) Well, one thing about this novel that I think we should get out of the way early is what I've kind of called the elephant in the room with regards to the storyline. In that the story centers around this kind of pandemic that's this fast spreading pandemic that manifests itself usually as a respiratory ailment spread via close contact. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast years and years and years in the future and you don't have the context as to why this might stand out a bit, uh, we're smack dab in the uh, in the kind of last third of 2021. We've had a very long pandemic, but 99% of people listening, you all know this, so I won't really get into that. But we have all of the following kind of mentioned in the novel. We have people wearing masks. We have social distancing. We have people being quarantined. We have people creating and distributing vaccines. And I want to ask, I mean, you know, we have to talk about this a little bit. Did you feel, Bruce, that it hit a little too close to home, given the current state of the world? Absolutely. Yeah. Because anytime I see the word vaccine now, (laughs) it's just like it's a daily word and our language and yeah it did and it was kind of weird too thinking about how this novel was written how many years ago about a decade ago i think yeah it's uh more i think it was 2004 so oh, that's about right. 15 years ago yeah you're right 15. 16 17 years ago <laughs> yeah so i mean you know i guess the thing is as real world things play out in a pandemic you're going to see a lot of parallels to what people predicted in fiction before this happened as to how things would play out in a pandemic and so it does hit close to home i thought it was also quite interesting as the doctors are talking about past world pandemics and they name several of them and i'm like but they didn't mention this one 
this is like one of the biggest ones and it wasn't even mentioned. Yeah, that went through my head as well, where they're like, have you ever heard of the Spanish flu? No, I haven't. Please enlighten me. Well, blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, man, if this were written, you know, five years from now instead of, you know, 17 years before. Yeah, the COVID-19 pandemic. That's one thing here. You can absolutely tell that the author did her homework and did the research because so much of what they're talking about and how this plays out and the public health measures being undertaken and all that sort of thing really follow closely what we have seen over the past year and more than a half now and what happened in the Spanish flu pandemic of 1917, for example, and all of that. So all of that hit very close to home and and definitely was something that was constantly in the back of my mind reading this because, I mean, how could it not be, right? Of course. There was one little bit towards the end, and I'm going to jump right near the end here that kind of set my alarm bells going off a little bit. There's one, not the main bad guy, but one of the one of the kind of people that was in his employ that was uh, helping to spread this disease apparently uh, was injected. They got a blood uh, sample taken. So they didn't they weren't given a vaccine on this particular occasion, but they were given an injection, you know, for a blood test. And at that time, they stuck a tracking device into his bloodstream via that injection and boy was my head like spinning as far as the whole 5g microchip conspiracy theory surrounding the covid vaccine and all of that and i was like oh my gosh i wonder who's reading this and who's going to be thinking about this and oh boy (laughs) i was just always amazed how well she knew medical things Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i don't remember the author's background uh and i know we may have talked about this with her, but I mean, there was times I was just like, how does she know all this? Like she's writing for Crusher and Salar and McCoy. And it's just like, you know, they're talking all this lingo and even Yahora is like, you know, okay, give me the layman thing. Like just dumb this down so I can understand. And I'm like, yeah, cause I'm not even understanding all this. My wife who's a medical professional probably would. But I don't know, did Margaret work in the medical field at any point in her life? I don't know. I I have no idea. I can't say honestly. And I was actually just looking through the acknowledgments to see if there was anything else. And I'm not sure there's there's no mention here of anybody who consulted on medical stuff specifically. Uh, So, yeah, I'm not sure. It, It strikes me as someone who really kind of did their research on a bunch of this stuff. Or maybe she does have some sort of personal life experience that contributes to that. I'm not sure. But as far as I know, as my position as an extreme layman when it comes to this sort of stuff... It all seemed to make a lot of sense to me, and I think she did an incredible job. I'd be curious to hear from people in the medical community about how good she got it. Like, you know, as far as the actual science and, and that kind of thing, talking about the different types of viruses, it sounds like she really did a deep dive on them. And I can't imagine that information just being flat out wrong because she went into such precise detail about it. Yeah, I should have my wife read this book because she would tell me. Like, you know, anytime we see something medical on TV or whatever, she's always like, no, no, it's this. And that. oh, okay, yeah, but, you know, it's like she knows all that stuff. No, it's good to have experts who, who know about that kind of thing, because I'm certainly not one. 
I feel like maybe over the past year and a half, we all feel like we've become a little bit of an expert in some of this stuff. But yeah, I really, I really don't know. I, I, I know enough to kind of understand, you know, the Dr. Fauci dumbed down for the general population explanation, but that's about it. We should have Dr. Fauci here on the show. We should have had him read the book. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should do the, um, oh, what's that series of next generation novels? The double helix ones, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. One. We'll have a series of book club episodes with Dr. Fauci. I like it. <laughs> He'd be game, right? He would. He, I don't. I bet he hasn't read them yet. Yeah, you never know. I don't know. We should that ask. Be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on now to the person who is mainly featured on the front cover here, and that's Uhura. So we're fairly late into the Lost Era, where I think it's like six years before the launch of the Enterprise D. Like it's very shortly before that now. And we see Uhura on the cover. And that might be a little surprising because she's TOS. She's old school. What's she doing here? Well, in this, at this time, according to this novel, she is the head of Starfleet Intelligence and an admiral. And I had a lot of thoughts about this because we've recently watched the Strange New World sneak peek where they talked about the new characters and that sort of thing. And brief spoiler alert if you don't know this or weren't aware, but... Uhura is going to be one of the characters in Strange New Worlds. And reading this novel at the same time that that news kind of came out, I kind of felt that this book was trying to do something that I feel like that show is going to be doing, which is expanding that character beyond what we've seen her as, which is, you know, the glorified telephone operator that she's sometimes viewed as just saying hailing frequencies open all the time and that kind of thing and giving her a more expanded, bigger role. And I have to say, I really appreciate how her role was expanded in this novel. And I thought it was really interesting how they built upon what we knew about Uhura in a way that made sense to me. Did you kind of feel the same way or how did you feel about Uhura's expanded role in this, I guess? You know, I'm so used to thinking of her now in this role at this time because I had read this novel so long ago and there's been other novels that have lightly referred to it and maybe there's another novel that we see her in this role. You know, I did think about Strange New Worlds because we recently saw the trailer for that series and the reveal of Uhura being in the series. And I thought, well, you know, this is really interesting because in that show, we're going to see the start of her career. And in this novel, we're seeing the last part of her career. I don't know how long she ends up living, but this novel takes place about a hundred years after the events of Strange New Worlds. So we know 100 years earlier, she was a cadet. She was a communications officer on the Enterprise for the longest time. And I love the bridge, no pun intended. I love the bridge of bringing her from the Enterprise into Starfleet Intelligence, that it happens immediately after the Kittimer Accords, that when we see at the end of Star Trek VI, everything that the Enterprise crew has been involved with and at that event, uncovering all the schemes that were taking place, that someone comes to her and says, we think we could use you. And they're so impressed with how she handled the Klingons 
and translating her you know language and communion with the outposts of those Klingons in Star Trek Six is like being one of the things that she's you know very capable of doing these things and they could really utilize her knowledge and her skills. So if you think that took place in twenty two ninety three, and now we're at this place, which is twenty two, I mean twenty three sixty then she's had many decades working in that field and all her experience of the Enterprise, it makes sense for her to be in this role. And I kept picturing Nichelle Nichols as she is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she's a much older woman now. I think when I first read this novel, I kept picturing how she looked, you know, like in The Undiscovered Country and how she looks on the cover. But now I was picturing more of how she looks today, if you see her in person. Absolutely. Yeah, I was doing the same thing. And it kind of led to some interesting things where I was picturing Nichelle Nichols, like you said, as she looks now, very, you know, natural and that kind of thing, working alongside Leonard McCoy in not that great old age makeup. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was exactly. a little odd. <laughs> and I could hear her voice. Her voice was so good too. And she's very yes. much like, I'm going to put you in place. And I'm going to speak my mind. Yeah. There were so many things the author did to really bring her character to life. And uh, to touch on something you said, the Star Trek six bit, the part that took place at Kittimer, I loved that part of the story for a number of reasons, showing the genesis of her career in Starfleet intelligence, just doing what communication officers already do. Listen, keep an ear out for things, you know, it fits, right? It really fits with her previous role and it makes a lot of sense. And also the fact that she was so embarrassed by her performance in Star Trek six, having to consult all the books to talk and cling on. I love that little bit of acknowledgement of the sort of ridiculousness of that scene. Also the fact that the author took it and kind of spun it around and made it into a positive. And like you said, it was one of the things that convinced Starfleet intelligence. She could think fast on her toes and adapt to difficult situations, exactly the kind of things that are needed in an intelligence officer. And I think my one favorite thing that the author did to really bring the Uhura character out and really make me picture Nichelle Nichols is whenever she gave someone the look. I was just going to say that. I was wondering, is he going there? I knew it. <laughs> yes, the look. And the look to what's-his-face. Oh, yes. gosh, how do we refer to him? I, I always call him Mr. Adventure. That's what yes. he was uh, called in the credits of Star Trek Three. yeah. And we get a name for Mr. Adventure in this, too. Heisenberg. Yeah, Heisenberg. Yeah. I loved that because, first of all, that is still one of my all-time favorite scenes in all of Star Trek, where if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's where that guy is, you know, talking to Uhura. They're both assigned to the transporter room right before Kirk is going to steal the Enterprise. And she puts him in the closet, right? He's like, what, you've lost all your sense of reality? And this isn't reality. This is fantasy. And, you know, pulls a phaser on him and such a good scene. And the look specifically is when he says to her, well, maybe that's okay for you. Who's someone whose career is winding down. <laughs> and she just gives him this look like, excuse me. And Uhura does that a number of times in the book and it gets referred to as that, the look. And it just, that sold me on this being Uhura in the pages of this novel. 
And then we see him in the later years at this time. Scott Heisenberg is this officer that is working with Uhura that he has developed better sensors to detect cloaking devices. And he's more of this engineering role. And he's an old man. That was also kind of weird, too, is, you know, picturing him as this old older man now you know and it was like i always just kind of figured that mr adventure probably just didn't have a very good starfleet career but he actually is an honorable officer you know he does have some intelligence it was just he was being young and kind of stupid i guess at at the time of star trek 3 yeah i really enjoyed his inclusion in this and he's kind of the cue of this story now When I say the Q of this story, and we're talking in Star Trek context, you may think of like John Delancey and Q, but no, more in like the James Bond style of Q. So he's kind of created all these gadgets and gizmos and neat ways of hiding things and stuff because what we've got in this story is this rundown freighter called the Albatross that is going to be sent across the neutral zone with a team to kind of figure out this whole pandemic thing. They think someone's engineered it. They're going to investigate all of this. And they have a fully stocked, fully equipped medical lab in the cargo bay of the ship, but it's all designed to like fold up and hide and disappear. And and yeah, this Heisenberg guy is kind of the mastermind behind all the little gadgets that make it work. So I thought that was a fun role for him. And under the list of characters that I ever thought would be brought back for a story, Mr. Adventure, I would never have ever thought of in a million years. So I thought that was a really fun aspect to the story, bringing him back. And now he's like one of the most trusted aides of Uhura's on her staff. I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah. Like I said, I wouldn't expect that either of this character. So it's, it was a pleasant and fun surprise. And I love how you relate him to Q from the James Bond stories, because yeah, that's essentially what he's like. I wish I would have thought that at the time because I would have pictured the original actor who played Q. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but I would have pictured that guy. Yeah, that would have been fun. I, I did have a hard time picturing him as well, like you said, an older guy. I still kind of gave him that big, like, floppy 80s haircut, yes. which, you know, he probably wouldn't have at this time, but I couldn't help it because that's like his defining feature that i remember and he also revealed that uh he had he had told uhura that after that incident with the closet he stayed in there for several hours because he was so <laughs> and he really his kidneys were filling up you know <laughs> he just really had to go to the bathroom <laughs> i love that image that made me really happy that was funny oh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's funny actually I I made a list off the top of my head that we'll get to in a few minutes about all the the familiar faces in this novel and I forgot to include him. So yeah, he is another one. Yeah. Yeah, and there there is a good list. I'm I'm looking forward to when we get to this cuz as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of familiar characters. Well, let's talk a little bit about the story and, and what they're doing. So like I said, they're taking this uh adventure in the neutral zone on this freighter, the Albatross. And the albatross is named by the person who will be commanding the ship, who is Lieutenant Benjamin Sisko, of course, of Deep Space Nine fame. We see him later as commander, then captain in DS9. And he has a team on board consisting of Tuvok from Star Trek Voyager, Dr. Salar from TNG, and this young Romulan orphan who's been pulled off the streets, Zetha. She's on this team as well. And meanwhile, back at Starfleet, 
headquarters or Starfleet Intelligence headquarters, we have Uhura, Dr. McCoy, and Dr. Crusher all working on the problem there as well. So they're going across the neutral zone to track down the source of this deadly pandemic. It looks to have been bioengineered. We see all these different worlds throughout the neutral zone, how people are responding to the threat of this outbreak. What did you think of this team and, and how they kind of work together? I love the team of Tuvok, Salar, and Cisco working together. And as you were talking through this, I started to realize how natural all these characters fit together in the story and how they play out in the story. There's so many times you can read a Star Trek novel that brings characters from different series to work together and sometimes it kind of feels like a little forced or okay now this character all of a sudden just happened to be there and they all seem to run into each other in this case it seemed very natural because Ahura is that pin that brings everyone together she she pins them all together you know she has a friendship with Curzon Dax, which Curzon Dax recommends Cisco, right? Mm -hmm. And then they have to use a medical team. And it makes sense that a Salar and a Crusher would be working together because they later work together on the Enterprise and they're younger doctors, younger officers that are brought into the fold as the medical team for this. And of course, Ahura is going to go to her buddy Bones to kind of help out with things. So it just made sense as to how it all played out. It never felt forced. And then when they would have these meetings together, and not just the three of them of Cisco and Tuvok and Salar together, but then you also have Crusher and McCoy and Uhura there, but they're there as holograms. They have that new hologram technology that is later revealed as like, you know, which eventually lead to the Doctor on Voyager, but it's still early in its development. And they're using this technology. So some of them are on the ship, but they're not really there. They're back on Earth. And it makes sense because Ohora and, and McCoy at their age really be out on the ship and they're all together. No, it kind of makes sense that they would be phoning it in. But, you know, with Cisco, I liked him because, you know, this is early in his career. He's worrying about his family, Jennifer and Jake, and he should be there for Jake when he goes off to kindergarten. Tuvok and Salar, oh, I shouldn't say, I mean, Tuvok's not medical, but I'm, I'm just thinking more like, you know, his science brain in, in a sense, the logical piece of him. They worked so well together, and I really liked the Cisco-Tuvok relationship for some reason. I just liked how they played together. Yeah, I, I enjoyed all of this, this interaction and all that sort of stuff. Tuvok makes sense, of course, because he has a Starfleet intelligence background as well. And he inf infiltrated the Maquis ship in Star Trek Voyager. That's something that we've seen him do in the past. So it makes sense that he would be as part of Uhura's team and doing like covert work. So I, I really enjoyed that. I did also feel that we got some interesting insights into these characters because Tuvok, he's kind of the quintessential Vulcan, but there are times where he has to play act as a Romulan. And I thought like that might come across as a little bit outside of what we know of as Tuvok, but the author really made it work here where I could see Tuvok doing this sort of thing because Again, he has that background in infiltrating. He would have had to pretend to be part of the Maquis to be on, on Chakotay's ship. You know, Vulcans never lie. Ha ha ha. Yeah, right. 
you know, he's doing all of this to fit in and be that person who's infiltrating these worlds and, and pretending to be a Romulan. And Solar, I loved how she came across and how much of her kind of weird sense of humor almost as a Vulcan came across. There's one part that I absolutely loved where McCoy says something like, I'm sorry that I didn't quite live up to the standards to of the Vulcan pre- uh, perfectionism society or something like that. And Solar says, well, first of all, doctor, it would just be called the Vulcan society to avoid redundancy. <laughs> and I love that line. <laughs> so good yeah and i don't remember exactly what she said but there was something that was a lie but it came Mm -hmm. across as a lie but it's really truth because she's vague enough yeah she's talking about zetha and i don't know why i remember this so clearly probably because i read half the novel yesterday like i read this novel very quickly very recently but they're they're kind of introducing everybody and the guy like indicates zetha and Solar says, my sister's youngest. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, blah, blah, blah. And then Cisco calls her on and it's like, your sister's youngest? And she says, well, my sister has three siblings, so it makes sense that one of them would be the youngest. But you told him that Zetha was your sister's youngest. And she said, no, I didn't. I didn't say this woman is my sister's youngest sibling. I said, my sister's youngest. Right, and Cisco's like oh that's how you do it okay (laughs) I know I read that and I was like wait did I just read this correctly and I had to reread that part one more time just to make sure I got it you know it sounds like something I would have done like in middle school you know it's like the I'm not touching you I'm not touching you when your fingers like right up at somebody it's like it's almost like I didn't say you know you just inferred that I can't be held responsible for what you what you infer from what I say I did not say that (laughs) yeah that's like going into the pantry and going chocolate chip cookies and someone says we have chocolate chip cookies no I just happened to say chocolate chip cookies. I didn't say we had them. (laughs) Exactly. You can tell what I'm craving right now is chocolate chip cookies. Well, the last little point I want to make about this section here with this team on the ship going across the neutral zone and stuff is would this not make a really cool television series? Like, could you imagine like a troubleshooting team going into the neutral zone undercover each week trying to like put out these little fires of situations for Starfleet intelligence, you know, not section 31, just Starfleet intelligence, but you know, kind of doing not black ops things where you're like assassinating people or anything like that, but you know, investigating, sneaking into places maybe you shouldn't be and trying to problem solve and figure a thing out. I really enjoyed this story and I was like, I want a TV series like this or a series of books like this. I don't know. This just seems like so much fun. I just realized, I mean, it sounds like Mission Impossible. Yeah, a little bit. Why not create a Star Trek series called Star Trek Mission Impossible? Because... And I don't remember what the agency's called or whatever, but let's just assume it lasts into the 24th century. The Mission Impossible agency could still be around for centuries and be part of Starfleet. So we could actually have that. Was it the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force? Is that it? I don't know. That might be Something like that. I don't know. We have Tom Cruise in it, too. And you could have file footage of like past missions with Leonard Nimoy because he was part of the original Mission Impossible series yes. in the 60s. Holodeck trainings from the 60s series. 
There you go. Yeah, I feel like there's some rights issues to be resolved there, but they could figure it out. They're both both are owned the movie franchises by Paramount. Yeah. So Yeah. You know, they could figure something and out. And they were both by uh Desi Lu at the time. Both Star oh. Trek and Mission So yeah, they're they're very closely related. There we go. Yeah. And you know what? It. I'm sorry. I have to throw this out there. We're not gonna get a series like that, but come on, Waypoint comics. Like you remember the Waypoint <laughs> stories that do stuff like they could do this in IDW comics. I don't know. I'm holding out hope. Let's get Kurtzman on the phone. We'll get this going. Yeah, he'll listen to anything. He'll do anything. Well, I hope this is one of them. But something like this would be fun. It was it was in the back of my mind that I'm like, if Star Trek Section 31 was something like this, I could get behind that. That sounds like fun. You know, in Mission Impossible, they get the tape that then destroys itself after you get the message. You could do that hmm. with like a tricorder. And all of a sudden the smoke starts <laughs> coming out. Or like a hologram that appears and delivers their mission message and then deletes itself. And you're left wondering just a little bit, is this a sentient hologram? Did he... <laughs> That's right. maybe getting a little dark. I don't know. And they all look like the doctor. Exactly. They all have to be Robert Picardo for sure. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I pictured. That's great. Mm-hmm. We do get a little shout out to the EMH in this novel as well, where I think it's, I'm maybe misremembering, but McCoy says something like, you know, why don't they just have a holographic doctor that blah, 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 or something. And Uhura is like, oh, how does he know about the EMH program we've been developing? Oh, it's probably just a coincidence. He that's that's ten years away. We you know we before we're even doing tests on that. <laughs> yeah, there were little winks that Uhura knows of things that are to come. Yes, I like mm-hmm. that. Well, speaking of Uhura and Tuvok and Cisco and Salar and McCoy, we've got so many familiar faces in this novel, and a few. Well, one for sure, anyway, that I was like, I suspected they were a familiar face, but I wasn't sure, and I had to look it up after I was done reading. So yeah, we've got Uhura, Benjamin Cisco, Curzon Dax. We talked about Tuvok, Crusher, Salar, McCoy. Uh, for the Romulans, we have Kretak, who's a senator we see in Deep Space Nine. Koval, who's a colonel in the Tal Shiar and becomes chairman of the Tal Shiar in the Deep Space Nine in the DS9 series. We see him in season seven. Captain Layton at this time, who's captain of the Okinawa, Cisco's ship. Uh, at the very end, we get Luther Sloan, who we know is of Section 31. So there's hints of that in here. The one that I wasn't sure about, but I looked it up and this is in fact the same person. We have Admiral Tall, who's a Romulan, who is a sub-commander in the original series. In the episode, The Enterprise Incident, we had the Romulan commander and he was her second in command. And I looked him up and Margaret Wander Bonanno has used him in a number of novels And it's clear that it's meant to be that same character from the third season of the original series. Okay, so I didn't pick up on that. But now the actor who played that character, wasn't she married to him? Yeah, that is true. And she did mention that, of course, in the interview that we had with her a while back about Strangers from the Sky. And it's so funny. You mentioned that. I had totally forgotten that, but you are absolutely right. I made the connection that, yeah, this this character and he's been in so many of her books. Isn't that interesting? And I totally forgot about that. That's incredible. So she had to work him in here, right? Totally. I love it. Oh, that makes that aspect of it even so much better. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about it until we were talking. When you said who Tao was, I was like, oh, from the T.O. Oh, wait. 
she was married or at least whatever she was with him you know the actor and her margaret together that's so great that makes me so happy also add to that of course because of the other characters who are in this novel cisco and crusher we also get cameos by jake cisco and jennifer cisco uh cisco's son and wife respectively and of a little brief appearance by wesley crusher at one point and we see dr crusher at home so yeah there's a lot of familiar faces here and i was curious how you felt about so many of these familiar characters being put into the novel. I mean, I loved it because it made it fun and it didn't feel forced. Like I was saying earlier, it seemed Mm -hmm. natural. If it didn't seem natural, it would just been like, well, okay, you know, it's cool to see them together, but you know, but this just seemed so natural. It just worked. It made sense why they were there. I can't remember what the other Lost Era novel that was that we read where I remember saying I felt like some of these characters were just, oh, well, they're so-and-so now and just out of the blue, so-and-so's at the party. And, you know, sometimes they mm-hmm. just seem forced and they really didn't need to be there. It just felt like the author was just putting them there. It did not feel that way to me here. Yeah, I actually agree with you 100%. I felt that each one of these added something to the story. I thought it worked really, really well. You know, even even the bad guy, Koval, being kind of the, the main baddie here. When he's in Deep Space Nine, there's a scene where he's talking to Dr. Bashir about you know, the quickening disease that they, that the Jem'Hadar, the Dominion developed that infected this planet. How would that possibly be introduced to a larger population? How would one go about doing that? So like we know he's into bioterrorism and and bioengineered weapons and that kind of thing. So like each one of these really felt like they made sense. My mind kept going back to the Rachel Garrett novel where there were almost no familiar characters. And it just, for me, there were other factors that led to this, but I think that was part of why I had such a hard time getting into that story and really getting a firm grasp on the story as a whole is I I had no anchors to what I know of as Star Trek to really bring me along. Whereas this one, I think it works better with all of these familiar characters because they're around at this time. They're doing things at this time. It makes sense that they are where they are. And if you're going to tell a Star Trek story set at this time, why wouldn't you use the characters that you know are around right now? So, yeah, like you, it just it worked really well for me. Yeah, because you can look at it and say, well, what would Crusher be doing at this time? Well, what she would be doing at this time is what she's doing in this novel, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it just all seems to make sense. And then new characters like Zetha was a refreshing character. I enjoyed her. I mean, she's kind of quiet and distant at first, but you can tell as the novel plays out, she opens up more. And she's even discovering herself as it goes along. So I enjoyed her journey as to trying to figure out who she is and where she came from. And is she part of the Tao Shiar or not? And mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of interesting aspects because we're kind of following our characters along, trying to figure out who she is. And then we get these flashback glimpses of to her past and we're putting those puzzles together of figuring her out. Yeah, I ultimately loved her story and I, I would love to see more of her in the Star Trek universe. I think she's a really interesting addition. Like that's kind of feeding into my thoughts of like, I'd love to see a series of books about Starfleet intelligence. And maybe she's now an asset that they call upon every once in a while or something like that. I think that would be really cool. 
and her arc through this whole story where, you know, early on she thinks that like, well, when she's no longer useful to Starfleet, they're going to kill her, obviously, to like where she is at, by the end, the kind of greater understanding about what's going on and her place in the world and all that kind of stuff. I really enjoyed that for sure. I like the idea of creating a series of novels that follows this, you know, mm-hmm. and we can introduce other Star Trek familiar characters into it. I mean, Hora could be recruiting other officers. I don't, Cause I don't know if I would buy the fact that Cisco early in his career was heavily involved in Starfleet intelligence all the time, but maybe it's just like, she's always kind of recruiting different characters early in their career. Maybe there's one there. It's Geordi LaForge, you know, for example, mm-hmm. or something, you know, where it's just, you just kind of play it, you know, even uh, Jadzia before she's Dax or something, you know, like yeah, just little things definitely. like that. And now, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, what was Crusher really up to when she was gone for season two? Yeah, just heading Starfleet Medical, please. What did Starfleet Intelligence have her actually doing? I love that. And Pulaski is actually Starfleet Intelligence spying on Captain Picard and Data. There you go. Definitely. You know, it's actually funny you mentioned Pulaski because that is one thing I thought of after I was done the novel was I would have thought they would have had her in here because I don't know why. I just feel like she was big into medical research or something. So I thought, oh, that maybe that was just one too many, though, or something. But. Yeah. That would have been interesting. It would have worked to have her there, but yeah, maybe it would just be a one too many. I think that's true. Well, towards the end of this novel, we kind of get all the, the pieces tied up. The storylines are kind of coming together here. We learn about this Cinchona guy, this guy who took the name Cinchona, but his real name is Thamnos. I keep trying having to say Thamnos. I think of Thanos, of course, from Same. the MCU, but yeah. nope, nope, nope. And uh, he's working with Koval to engineer this this virus. And it's funny because my mind kept going back to the episode of Deep Space Nine with Koval in it. And Section 31 and Starfleet actually work to put Koval in a higher position than he was in. Because he's like on their side kind of thing. And in this novel, I'm like, oh, he's so horrible and like wants to test this virus out and kill millions. And oh, I can't believe. But of course, yeah, it's section 31. I guess they're okay with allying themselves with someone this horrible. But so, yeah, he's working with this Thamnos guy. Thamnos turns out to be this disgraced researcher who doesn't seem all that intelligent and couldn't do this himself. So, of course, yeah, Koval is helping him. And was also going to use Thamnos as like a fall guy when this all came to light. So it wasn't actually the Romulans. It was this disgraced Federation doctor that did this all. So, yeah. What did you think of how all of this kind of wrapped up here? Thamnos was a very interesting character to me. I did not expect this type of character to appear. Uh, He kind of felt like a kind of a loser. (laughs) You know, mm-hmm. and he's easily manipulated and, and just maybe a little off his rocker. And I love how Caval is using him as his cover up. So it, it was not my favorite part of the story, but I did like seeing how that actually was being used. And I thought even that Thamno's wife throws a knife at him and kills him in the neck like that. Like that shocked me to the point that I was like, wait, did that just really happen? <laughs> <laughs> And as I read it, 
kept going, it was like, yeah, that that did happen. That that was like the big shocking thing for me because I was not expecting that. Yeah, she just kind of drifts into the scene and does this and acts all weird and then goes home. Yeah. <laughs> but she's all high and stuff. So, yeah, it's really weird. That part was very bizarre. Yeah. But no, I liked it. I, I think the thing I enjoyed most about the novel was just the characters that we were talking about earlier and their interactions and putting the pieces together. Yeah, that's what I loved about this was the whole problem solving aspect of it. And and when I was talking about wanting a series like that, that's what I want, like the mystery, right? The kind of piecing things together and figuring things out and investigating and going where you're not supposed to. I, I thought all of that was a lot of fun on this covert mission with this old beat up falling apart freighter. So much fun. I want to say like probably this and Keith DeCandido's book are the two of the lost era that I had the most fun reading. And I'm so glad that this small series ends on this note because you know some of the novels we were getting i was enjoying but i wasn't like really really loving and this one i really loved it i really enjoyed it cover to cover when this series of novels came out for the lost era and anybody who's listened to past episodes of this i hadn't read all of them at that time of course now as we've been going through them now i have but this was the first one I read out of the Lost Era at that time. I didn't read the others until sometime a little later. I don't know why. It was, you know, whatever was going on in my life at the time. But I do remember really wanting to read this and really enjoying it when I did. That's awesome. So I guess if there's nothing else major to kind of bring up with regards to the main part of the story, are there any final thoughts that you want to share and maybe a rating for Catalyst of Sorrows? This novel had a very believable story there was nothing about it that just seemed like okay this is over the top i mean you know for star trek there's a lot of things that are still kind of over the top or whatever but it just again with felt very natural with these familiar characters being there they talked and acted like we know of these characters so they didn't seem out of character to me the mystery like you just said is very interesting to me we got some backstory to the Romulans in here mm -hmm. towards the first half of the novel. There was some of that in there that was nice. So there's some depth to this and depth to the backstory of our characters, the familiar characters and the unfamiliar characters. So there's a lot of riches in this book and it's very well thought out. And of course you can tell Margaret knows her Star Trek. So I would give this a very high rating. I would give this nine out of 10 resignation letters just waiting to be sent. I have to agree with pretty much everything you said there. Yeah, I really enjoyed this novel. I thought it was excellent. I love that you brought up that it gives a lot of backstory to the Romulans because I had some Star Trek Picard vibes a little bit reading this specifically some of the backstory to star trek picard and i was thinking of una mccormick's novel last best hope there's a part where kretak is talking about how this disease is getting closer and closer to the romulan homeworld and she looks out onto the street and sees hopelessness and that sort of thing and i was thinking of the coming supernova in last best hope and how that feeling was pervading this novel well at the same time we're getting like really interesting backstory on the romulans and that sort of thing so yeah i was really getting those vibes there and i thought that was really cool but overall like the world building 
the characters, the little bits of humor, the creative use of elements and tropes in the Star Trek universe. All of it just comes together here in a really fun, really interesting story. So yeah, like I can't find a lot in here that I didn't like. So, you know, I think I'm just going to have to go for it and give it I'd say five out of five meetings between the Federation and the Romulan Empire that are technically not on the books because we have to officially say that there was no official contact for 50 years between the two governments, except for all of the contacts that happened that we're not acknowledging. (laughs) Would you write all that down for me, please? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> just let me listen back to it again cuz I don't know what the heck I just said, but <laughs> one thing I want to call out real quick. By the way, that's a great rating, of course. But one thing I wanted to call out uh, that I wanted to mention earlier and I forgot, and that is Uhura's first name Yoda is mentioned in here several times and that was a name that mm-hmm. was not officially on screen until 5 years later. Right. Yeah. It had been used in several novels up to this point, but yeah. Yeah. This wasn't the first time it was used, of course. Yes. It had been used in novels before, but I just wanted to point, and even video games. I had a Nintendo game where her first name was used too, back in Mm -hmm. the early nineties, but, uh, which was the 25th anniversary game. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out because I I was, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, because I was reading the novel, I was noticing the first name. I was thinking, you know what? This was again. Yeah. The the name came from the novels, people. Just just so you know, the novels do have influence. Totally. And Bruce, when you're wanting to have influence on your myriad followers on social media, where can they find you? I guess you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. And I guess you can find me on the Star Wars report whenever that happens. And then you can find me occasionally on Literary Treks just doing some things over there for now. We don't know how long. And then, uh, yeah, I'm in our Facebook discussion group, you know, which is a great place to be. Positively Trek discussion group. Oh, great conversations happening there. I love it. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And like Bruce in the Positively Trek discussion group, which is just... You know, this nice little island of positive conversation and stuff in this sea of kind of not great social media out there. So, you know, join us there. We'd love to have you. We'll be back soon, of course, with our Lower Decks review episode and a flagship episode of our main podcast, Positively Trek. Until then, thank you so much to the Patreon supporters. You are who make this podcast possible. We really do appreciate everything you do. Just go to patreon.com slash positively trek if you're interested in donating to the show. We have some perks for you, including early access to episodes and hopefully some other stuff that we'll be able to provide to you as well. So until the next episode, as always, stay positive. The Mission Impossible... The Mission Impossible... The Mission... (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.